coming off of our big discussion on predestination. I'm not going to really talk about it a whole lot today. The One of the key passages we talked about last week, we will get to in Romans 8. <clears throat> but that's not really the focus of Romans 8, and so we're not going to dwell on it. Uh, what we are going to dwell on today is a really big theme of Romans 8, which is really, I mean, if you were to sum it up, it's really the Spirit. <clears throat> now, when I say the Spirit, what do you think I mean? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. So what is the Holy Spirit? God, God, living within us. God living within us. We're already done. You guys already know Romans 8. Uh, we don't have to go any further. If God is living within us, uh, you know, t- tell me, Ken, um, how can God live within me? What does that mean? And if you can trust yourself more, what does that imply? Who do you trust? Seems like you're implying that you're being led by someone outside outside of you. Okay. And if you trust that someone or something, what does that imply about the someone or something? They're trustworthy. Yes, led by trustworthy. Person, we'll call it person. I think we miss that a lot. Yeah. Ah. Mm Hmm. You know, I I feel led to do things a lot of times that I just don't do because, Mm -hmm. like, eh, who am I? Okay. Well, let's. Let me ask some of these. So we're going to get into the word, and I think it would be best today. Let's just start with the questions that I'm asking, because as we go through the text, I really want us to be thinking about these. And maybe you know you already feel like you know the answer. That's fine. Um, maybe you don't. I may not. Who? And this <laughs> this kind of gets at what we talked about last week, and this is important. Who was the audience of Romans? And of course, the first answer you're going to give me is Romans. Uh, it's deeper than that. Morning, Lorna. Who was the audience or audiences? What power did the law hold? And we'll talk about, we've talked about the law for seven chapters. This will be the eighth time we've talked about the law. I want you to think, what is the law? And what power did it hold? With power, the opposite is weakness. What weakens the law, if that's even possible? 
Here's a good question. What is the, quote, ultimate sin offering? We've talked about sin in the past, and we've talked about how it is, it is essentially missing the mark with God. It means failing with God. And we've talked about the fact that God requires, he's a just God, he requires payment or redemption for those who have gone astray, for those who are slaves to another master. So in order to get those slaves back, there must be a sin offering. There has to be payment to buy that slave from one master to go to, to, go to Christ. So what is the ultimate sin offering then <clears throat> to pay that? This is a good one. What is the mind of the sinful man? Think about that. Don't think about what the mind of the sinful man is thinking. That's a whole different lesson. What is the mind of the sinful man? And, and I wrote the answer here, and I shouldn't have, so I took it out. What is controlled by the Spirit? And I've kind of already led you to the answer there. This is a good one. Who is the Son of God? You may or may not know the answer to that. And what is spiritual adoption? What do we mean by spiritual adoption? In fact, the New Testament, especially Paul, talks about this idea of spiritual adoption quite a bit. Another question to think of, what is the value in following Christ? We'll kind of wrap up with that. And maybe it's apparent, maybe it isn't. So let's get into the word right away. We have the magic microphone again, and we're going to use that um, probably until the end of Romans, quite honestly, until I get all the sound worked out for the audience. But today we've got three big sections that we're going to go through. So I need three people to read. I've got three star students in the front row, so maybe that'll work out. Um, we're going to do start with Romans 8, 1 through 17. So now those who are in Christ Jesus are not judged guilty. Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit that brings life made me free from the law that brings sin and death. The law was without power because the law was made weak by our sinful selves. But God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son to the earth with the same human life that others use for sin. By sending his son to be an offering for sin, God used a human life to destroy sin. He did this so that we could be the kind of people the law correctly wants us to be. Now we do not live following our sinful selves, but we live following the Spirit. Those who live following their sinful selves think only about the things that their sinful selves want. But those who live following the Spirit are thinking about the things the Spirit wants them to do. If people's thinking is controlled by the sinful self, there is death. But if their thinking is controlled by the Spirit, there is life and peace. When people's thinking is controlled by the sinful self, they are against God because they refuse to obey God's law and really are not even able to obey God's law. Those people who are ruled by their sinful selves cannot please God. But you are not ruled by your sinful selves. You are ruled by the Spirit, if that Spirit of God really lives in you. But the person who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. Your body will always be dead because of sin. But if Christ is in you, then the Spirit gives you life, because Christ made you right with God. God raised Jesus from the dead, and if God's Spirit is living in you, he will also give life to your bodies that die. God is the one who raised Christ from the dead, and he will give life through his Spirit that lives in you. So my brothers and sisters, we must not be ruled by our sinful selves or live the way our sinful selves want. If you use your lives to do the wrong things your sinful selves want, you will die spiritually. But if you use the Spirit's help to stop doing the wrong things you do with your body, you will have true life. The true children of God are those who let God's Spirit lead them. The Spirit we receive does not make us slaves again to fear. It makes us children of God. With that Spirit, we cry out, Father, and the Spirit himself joins with our spirits to say we are God's children. 
If we are God's children, we must receive blessings from God together with Christ. But we must suffer as Christ suffered so that we will have glory as Christ has glory. Thank you. So I'm going to start. Think about all these things that you've just read. A lot of them are hit on with these questions here. I want to ask first, we need to settle this. Who is the audience of the letter to the Romans? Church in Rome. Made up of various different groups. Yep. You've mm-hmm. got former practicing Jews. Okay, this is a big one. You certainly have some Gentiles yep. in the mix. You have yep. some Roman hierarchy rulers in the mix. Aristocracy. Yep. Yep. You've got it. You've got it right there. <clears throat> it's really important, I think, to make this point. 2,000 years later, as practicing Gentile Christians, we all tend to kind of assume that Christianity is a very different religion than Judaism. <clears throat> In the first century, that is not the case. In the 21st century, that's not the case. You're all Jews. Congratulations, you didn't know it, uh, in a way. Spiritually, you have been, <clears throat> you've been adopted, and we'll get into that in a minute, as, as Jews in, in a certain sense. And now I want to talk about this. The primary audience that Paul is writing to in all of his letters are Jews and Gentiles who have given their lives to Christ. And so <clears throat> when you say the church in Rome, again, church kind of denotes this, this big separation. There's Christians on one side and there's synagogue on the other. It's, it's, it's really not that. Remember, Paul went to the synagogues first to preach the good news. How many people believed? Some. So what we're really saying here is Christ followers. You have to remember, Christianity is just the answer to Judaism. It's just the last step in what is the gospel, essentially, thousands of years of history of, and this is why as Christians, we have the Jewish Bible. Our Old Testament is not called the Old Testament of Judaism. It's called the Bible. This is why as Christians, it is our foundation. <laughs> you know, Our New Testament is written on the foundation of Judaism. To Paul and to Peter, especially, Christ is just the final answer to Judaism. Judaism is the what we call <clears throat> God's elect. <clears throat> so let's write this down here. Judaism is God's elect. If you go to last week's video and you click on the <laughs> the dissertation link uh, for the notes, I have I have added some stuff that's not in this. And I kind of made the comment, Ken, you weren't here last week, that that this is evolving and and I'm still working on it. But I've added all of the references in the, and I believe it's the Old and New Testament, that refer to who God's elect are from a group perspective. There is a group of people that are called God's elect or chosen people. And who are they? It's the Jews. The Jews are God's elect in the sense that it is fulfilled by Christ. So, uh, you know, it's social. I don't really want to get into all this. It's social, it's cultural, and it's religious. 
you have a lot of people who are in the Roman church who, like was said earlier, either they were devout Jews or are still Orthodox Jews who are choosing to follow the, the, the law and the Mosaic laws and all of that, or they're proselytes, people who have converted to Judaism. <clears throat> Maybe they're not circumcised, but they believe in Yahweh as being the one true God of the universe. <clears throat> but here's the key. <clears throat> it, 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 how do I say it? The climax equals the Messiah. <clears throat> the Messiah is the answer to the Old Testament or to the Jewish religion. And, and again, today, there are many Orthodox Jews around the world who don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but they believe in the Messiah. This is an important part for them. They absolutely believe that one day, they think, a anointed one of God will come to save the elect, who is the Jews, and, and make the world anew again. And, and all of the enemies of God will be judged, <clears throat> And, and the people who follow God will be saved. In the first century, Paul is making the case in Romans, in, in every chapter, guess what? Your Messiah has come. He is here. He was here. Judaism has been fulfilled. And, and maybe I'll say it a different way here, fulfillment, because that's kind of like, you know, the answer. <clears throat> okay. Now, if you understand that a huge chunk of who Paul is talking to is Jews, and remember, there's a reason why every chapter of Romans has quotes from the Old Testament. Why would Paul include quotes from the Old Testament if it didn't matter? Yeah. So, say it. Yeah. Yeah. And they're familiar with it. That's it. What do you say? That's all they have. They're, they're familiar with it. Why are they familiar with it? Because there's a whole chunk of people in his audience who are Jewish or, you know, call themselves Jewish. Now, remember, again, I keep beating this dead horse. There was no such thing as Christianity as a separate religion in the first century. Even the Romans didn't. The Romans didn't recognize it as separate. They just saw it as Judaism, a sect of Judaism. I guarantee you Peter didn't see it as a separate religion. Paul is, is now preaching to the Gentiles, but he is not claiming that this is a completely separate message. In fact, he's saying this is the message. It's the answer. So, who is the audience of Romans? It's really important to keep in mind a big, big, big chunk of them is this. Now, of course, it's also Gentiles. And, and Paul is trying to evangelize to Gentiles, people who know nothing about Judaism. But this is why he has a lot of these quotes from the Old Testament because he wants the Gentiles to know what the lead up to this is. He wants them to know what the foundation is so he knows what the answer is. Okay. It says right in here, what is the power of the law? Now I'm going to ask you again, we've asked this before, what is the law? This is Mosaic, so we say Mosaic. Essentially, um, they were given by Moses, so that's why we call them Mosaic laws. Why is the law so important to a Jew? Well, it directed their daily lives, every yep. minute of their lives. Yeah. It was their path to salvation. Yes. 
they thought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sort of became the law was meant they were Jewish. Like it, yes. The law was their Ooh, yes. Yes. It's hard for us to understand the separation here, but there are separations between what what it means to be Jewish. <clears throat> you know, the social aspect is a big one. Um, I have a community of people uh, that I relate to. We act in a certain way. We do certain things. Um, and maybe, maybe I should say this a different way. I'm going to say social. Social is cultural. I'm going to say ethnic. <clears throat> I think that's a better way to say this. So cultural in the sense that we have certain practices. We have certain rules and, and things that we do. We have food laws. We have laws for how we worship our God. We have laws for how we, um, what we can and can't do on a Sunday. Well, Saturday, excuse me. The Sabbath. <clears throat> um, but it's also ethnic from the sense that if you were, you know, um, you know from the region of Palestine <clears throat> in antiquity, you came from Canaan uh, uh, and you, you called yourself a Jew, it was ethnic to a certain degree, uh, although that lost a lot of its meaning as time went on, especially after the exile. So it's ethnic, it's cultural, and it's religious. This is the part we all understand. We have a bunch of religious rules for how we worship God and what God is and who he is and, and what he's doing. <clears throat> so the law, like we just mentioned, means this, these are the rules for how I conduct my life, but it's also how I get saved. What is the problem that, that Paul is saying here that the law, the law ended up being? It started out being a path to salvation, a way for me to live my life. It defined me as a Jew. It defined my ethnic, cultural, and religious activities. But it became what? It became a conviction. It became a, just the exact opposite. Yes. It says the law of sin and death. This is great. It became a law of sin and death. What? What? And so what power does that hold over you? What is, what is Paul saying here? It gets at who your master is. If you let the law be your master, now what? <clears throat> who are you living to serve? Yourself. Yourself. Yourself, because if you follow the law, then you are a good person, right? Look at me. And who did Jesus primarily attack in his message? He really only attacked one group of people to, 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 to a large degree. And who was that? Pharisees. Pharisees. And who were the Pharisees? The critical leaders. Yes. The people who made the law their God. The people who made the law their God. And, and said on the outside, I'm going to look like I'm following the law. I'm going to be a pious Jew. And I'm going to do all the things that look like make me a religious person. Who does that sound like today? <laughs> Every one of us. Every one of us, yes. I want to look like I'm a good person. How many people who are maybe a religious, maybe not really into religion or Christianity or something like that, you know, maybe, maybe starting with good intentions, <clears throat> give themselves to a secular, let's say, humanitarian or humanist um, organization. And I won't name names here, but you know, I want to I give to charity, but I'm going to tell everyone I give to charity. This is a good point that I want to point out to you. If you ever go to like the, the Des Moines Zoo, 
and you, and you walk by the wall with the donors, the donors wall, <clears throat> what do you see? You see sections carved out for the people who have given the most money, <clears throat> right? Thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. And then, and, you know, and it's kind of divided up, and then there's people who give hundreds and the people who give tens, right? <clears throat> how many people's names are on there, and how many are anonymous? I swear to you, the last time I was there, I saw no anonymous plaques. They were all names. Everyone saying, look at me, I gave money. Now, look, I, you know, of course I believe that, that they do it partially out of, the, you know, they want to help out and that kind of thing. But that's not the only reason that we do this. And, and we're all guilty of this. I want to show that I'm a good person, right? How many celebrities do you see who, who post <clears throat> Instagram or, or Twitter uh, uh, comments about the good work that they're doing and how they want to save the world and they want to you know, adopt people from other countries and do this and that. And it is, you know, I'm not trying to get into controversy here, but you know, on Sunday morning, they post all this great stuff about how great they are. Meanwhile, the night before, if you read TMZ, they were out doing all kinds of horrible things that they shouldn't have been doing. Um, <laughs> we're all like this. We all want the world to see what a great person we are. And sometimes it's even more nefarious than yes. that. It's, it's, well, I got a I gotta give and get my name on the plaque yes. because if I don't, someone will notice my name's not on the ah. plaque. And so I don't care about the cause. I just care about the appearance of the cause. You know, it's a good point. I, and I think that's even more prevalent than people really believing. It's, you know, I'm coming to Ken saying, you know, Ken, mm -hmm. you know, you really ought to give to my, I'm on the board of the zoo and I really need you to step up and yep. come through for mm -hmm. me and you might uh, have some business relationships and you feel obligated that if you don't come through then I'm not going to send my benefit to you in a professional way or whatever. Yep. And by the way, you can be a member of the Platinum Club. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like the, that's kind of it. The new Beaver Creek waterway. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's a parking lot with a sidewalk that goes down mm -hmm. into the water. That there's signs all over it that says, mm -hmm. you know, really donated by Cortiva yep. and City of Johnston. Yep. And look at us. Provided look at by, us. Look how great of a place you live and look how. I'm just going to say, Ken, I, I, I paid $8,000 in property taxes last year. I deserve a plaque. Uh, I'm just saying. But that school that my kids go to should have my name on it. I'm just saying. It's, it's all about, it's the look at me. Now, and again, Paul is making the comment here. The sin had a function. The sin had a function. Or, I'm sorry, the law had a function, excuse me. Freudian slip. The, the Hebrews wanted God to give them a set of laws, and God wanted to give them a set of laws to live by to kind of, to kind of reprogram them from their Egyptian slavery. But what it turned into was something much, much, much more and worse in a way. It ended up being kind of a way to condemn them. <clears throat> so now Paul is making the comment here <clears throat> that, well, here, let's ask this question. What weakens the law? What weakens the law? What is the natural way that the law becomes weak in us? You can't fulfill it. You cannot. No one. No one is perfect. How many, and, and again, the whole reason I'm asking you this is not just so that you know this. I think it sets the stage for, for this message, which for us 2,000 years later is kind of like, yeah, we've heard it many, many times. Paul's message is absolutely smacking 
his audience in the face. You have to understand that. This is a completely different message than they've heard before. If I was a pious Jew and I walk into a room where someone has gotten Paul's letter to the Romans and they're reading it and I'm hearing this, I'm like, what the blank is he saying? <laughs> this is 180 degrees different. You're telling me the law condemned me? What? No one is perfect? Sure they are. I've seen the, the high priest. He's perfect. Right? Caius? Caiaphas? Uh, you know? Well, even Paul himself was perfect. Yes. Ah. Explain what you mean by that. He was a Jew of all Jews. Yes. He did it all. Fulfilled every, every letter of the law. Yes. And thus fell into a trap. And then he said, I counted all rubbish. It was all useless. All this trying to look like I'm a great person. Because why? What, what is God trying to make the example of here? <clears throat> Remember, I've drawn this, this diagram before. Here's your works. Here's you. Here's your works, right? This is the outside. What is, what is Paul and, and God specifically trying to point out here? You may look like on the outside you got it all together. It's the Facebook effect. On the inside, you're rotten. <laughs> Yep. But ah, we, okay. We had to focus become ourselves, and so now. So Paul we shifted it. Yep. Good. Because you know? I mean, a lot of the laws mm-hmm. were specifically about mm-hmm. uh, worship and stuff, and yep. that was so that they would focus on mm-hmm. God. Yes. For what the law was powerless to do, and that's the other thing here, there's power. The power that the law held was this, the rules, um, the, the path to salvation, or so it, it, they thought. But it says, for what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature. So by our very nature, us, we took power away from the law. So then the question is, what is the answer then? If it's not the law, Paul, tell me what the answer really is. If, I, if following the law and looking like a good person isn't going to save me, who is? It's Jesus. Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? Son of God. Son of God. Ooh, that's a good question. What is the Son of God? <laughs> Okay. Okay. So they seem to be the same, but I'm asking, what does the Son of God mean? Jesus is God in the flesh. Okay. I think in your context, mm-hmm. we are all sons of God. Yeah, he knows ones. where we're going. We occupy the same description. Here's what, what Paul is going to get at. It's one thing to say that there is a Son of God, and, and this would be, this would sound more normal to a Greek of the first century, who you know believed in this pantheon of gods, Zeus and Athena and Poseidon and all of these other gods who controlled various aspects of the universe. <clears throat> this would sound more normal because gods procreated and they had children <clears throat> and they had parents sometimes. Uh, sometimes. So this is probably going to start to ring true with Greeks. <clears throat> you know this, this concept of the Son of God. Now again, this would be very very hard for a quote Jew pious Jew of the first century to understand why. Because God is one. 
There is only one God. I'm going to tell you right now, the one thing that I think you could say above all else, uh, you know, apart from their, their food laws and their, their social laws, um, their, their work laws, is they believe in monotheism. There is only one God of the universe. This was unique, uh, fairly unique in history. Now you're telling me he has a son. Okay, so that already is going to rub people the wrong way. But what does it mean? Okay, let's write this down then. Son of God. Now, if I were to ask you, I'm going to write that down. Okay, um, emulates the father. Paul's going back to uh, using examples that people understand. Yes. So most people have children. This is what I was going to And so they know how you feel towards your children. Yes. And so when you say that we're sons of God, Mm -hmm. then you can understand a little bit more Mm -hmm. what God is like and how we should Mm -hmm. behave Mm -hmm. because you know how you want your children to behave and things like that. So it's not just emulates, and that's a good, I mean, the first one that someone would say, if I asked you, what does it mean to be the son of a father? The first answer you would give is maybe a biological one that, you know, you could say there's a biological component. But not all sons are biological. Now, we know in the case of Christ, we believe as Christians that he is the biological son of the father in a miraculous way. But, but what if you're not a biological son? What's the other class here? You can be adopted. Now, this is a really good one. What does it mean to be adopted? Okay. You know what, Lorna, this is a really good one. I hadn't thought of it in this this way. I like your idea of grafted in. If you think of something like a plant, and this is the this is the analogy, right? A plant, you can take two different kinds of plants like a stem and a root stock and you can graft them, you know, cut both and you and you kind of stick them together, wrap them, they'll become one tree. Right? This is how it works in the in the trade nursery. Grafted in means they become one. You take something separate and you, and you fuse it with the first thing, and now they become the same entity. I, I do believe in a, in a social context and a spiritual one that grafted in applies here. You, you, God is taking something that is not directly biological of him, and, and you are making it part of him, just like you would if you adopt a, a, a young boy or young girl into your family. You graft them into your family. <clears throat> Ooh, yes. How many people adopt, and maybe I shouldn't ask this question, how many people adopt because they hate kids? <laughs> right? I mean, maybe in antiquity they would tend to do this because they needed hands uh, on, the, on the farm or something like that. But I think in general, in our modern age, you can say, I hope, the general rule is that people adopt because they want to have a family. They want to have children. It's the idea of being fully known and fully loved. Ooh, my older kids especially I know them mm-hmm. more than I know my younger ones because we were engaging we mm-hmm. were living life together I mean, here it talks about sharing and suffering and sharing and 
Okay, so we experience the world together. Shared experiences. That's a really good one. I might look at another, hmm? I might look at one of your kids and <clears throat> see them out smoking hmm? behind the church before, mm-hmm. you know, and be like, oh, look at that. I thought they were We've told Emma to, to cut back. She's down to one, one pack a day, but yeah. <laughs> you know, I would, I would, I would be more judgmental of them and you. Ah. And say, Oh my gosh, this is a really good one. I always refer to smoking. This is so important. <laughs> this is a really good one. We, you know, I, I tell you, I, I don't think of some of these things before we start this class. We tend to be less judgmental of our own children. We tend to cover a lot of sins. Oh, kids will be kids, right? But if their teenager runs over my curb and knocks over my tree, I'm like, that kid is a menace, right? They are terrible parents. They're not raising their kids right. Yeah. Now I'm going to ask you a real-world application here. Who do we, be, as Christians, tend to be the most judgmental of? Oh, fellow Christians. Why isn't he not dressing up for church, right? You know what I'm saying? I think this is funny that, that we called this out. There is one more aspect here, and this is the real key one that, <clears throat> that Paul is making the, the claim here. Let's say the real world example is I have a, um, a home building construction business. <clears throat> I started it myself. I started it from scratch. I've spent 20, 30, maybe 40 years building that company. I have a son <clears throat> who has expressed an interest in what I do in the company and in building homes for others. At, at some point, he, he kind of makes it clear that he wants to do this for a living. So what do I do? I start to groom him. I start to bring him onto the job. I start to show him what I'm doing. What is the ultimate goal there? For him to take over. That he is going to take over the business. He is going to what? Inherit. He is going to take everything I have. Now, This is a huge one. This is maybe one of the most important ones of all. Inheritance doesn't just apply to people with with, uh, home construction companies. In general, parents tend to make wills and leave their property or their businesses or, or, um, or money, so on and so forth, to their children. The children inherit what the father has, and then they are the father. They kind of take over. So now, Paul is making a really, really interesting comparison here. He's saying, yeah, there is a son of God. There is the son of God, who we say is Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But he's also saying this, guess what? If you believe in Jesus, who Jesus is, and what he says, We're joint heirs. you're going to be a joint heir. It's to perpetuate the legacy. It's not to... I love this. Keep the legacy alive. That is a huge one, Ken. Guys, dude, gold stars. Smaller class. Spirit is. I'm I'm 
being led, sir. <laughs> well, then how about you read the next passage? Uh, you're on fire, so uh, why stop here, right? We'll let you have the mic, and we'll do 18 to 27. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but we also, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly, eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Thank you. I wrote another one down here that I think is maybe one of the more misunderstood concepts of the New Testament, Christianity in general. And, and Paul makes a case here. It's freedom. Belief in Jesus is freedom. Now, what Paul continually tries to remind us of is that freedom doesn't mean it is a get-out-of-jail-free card for you to live your life in any sinful way you want. That is, that is absolutely not true, period. <clears throat> but think of freedom in the context of inheritance. At some point, if you inherit what is your father's, your father is going to, you know, your earthly father will pass away at some point. <clears throat> um, or, you know, before he does that, he may retire. And let's go back to the home construction business. He may retire. He may move to Tahiti. And he'd be like, good luck with that, son. Business is yours. Have a nice day. I'm going to a beach. Right? In that context, what is freedom? Okay, freedom from oversight. This is it. This is it. This is so good. Ken, five stars today. It's responsibility. But it is also freedom from oversight. And, and, and I'm not going to um, diminish that. God's like, okay, I've told you what to do. Christ is your model. He's the one you should be emulating. He's the one you should be copying. What would Jesus do? You think it's corny. It's absolutely the right statement or question to ask. At some point, it's, congratulations, here's the keys. And if you're Peter, it's the keys to the kingdom. What is loosed in, on earth is also loosed in heaven, and what is bound up on earth is also bound up in heaven. You're getting to the keys to the kingdom. But it's not the... Um, how do we say this? Uh, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the child that inherits the uh, trust fund baby. You're not a trust fund baby. You're not just getting a bunch of money to do with whatever you want, go buy your Ferrari and crash it. You've got a lot of responsibility now. I think the key with all this is that he doesn't just give us this responsibility and the release from the oversight. We're also given the Holy Spirit, which Ooh. allows us to live up to those standards. Otherwise, we couldn't. We'd be right back 
under the law, we'd have just a, maybe a different set of rules mm -hmm. that we couldn't live up to. Mm -hmm. But because we have the Holy Spirit, we can live up to them. So that the, the <clears throat> That's spirit great. That, you know, the power that raised yep. Jesus from the dead now mm -hmm. lives in us. So let's talk about that. That's an excellent point. Let's make the analogy here now that I have retired. I have passed the company on to my son, but I'm not dead, you know, physically yet. But I, I want to remain kind of involved. The company is my son's. My son is running the business day to day. How is that an analogy like the Holy Spirit if I say, I will help counsel you? Look, I've taught you a lot. I've given you... Whew, tons of information of how to live your life and how to run the business. But I get too that day to day you will run into scenarios that you may not exactly know what to do or maybe you need to be reminded of what to do. <clears throat> I love this that, that Steve brought this up because we're not left on our own. We're not left on our own. There is a counselor. In fact, the New Testament refers to the Holy Spirit as a counselor <laughs> who will help us. And, and not only is this just a counselor, it's not an angel, folks. It's not some guy that was pulled off of, you know, a duty, um, you know, fighting demons in South America to, to come over and help you. That's not who this is. It's, it's God himself, God's Holy Spirit. And let's write this down, counselor. It's going to help you run the business. You're not on your own. We're a franchise owner. Oh, I like that. Thoughts? How many of us call on the Holy Spirit to help? I, I raised my hand kind of sarcastically because I don't do it enough, Steve. Yeah, daily. Good. Excellent. Yeah. I, I, I look back and I've kind of seen my prayer life evolve, if you want to use that term, mm -hmm. um, to where now. I specifically you know, bring the Holy Spirit in my prayer life mm -hmm. for it. Maybe before I just kind of, it was just there, not part of. Mm -hmm. Because it, 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 when you read scripture, you understand the Holy Spirit is who's communicating to God on your mm -hmm. behalf. It, and then I'd start wondering, okay, that circular argument, does God really hear me? If, you know, mm -hmm. Before I had the Holy Spirit, does he? Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know. Mm -hmm. We know it's biblical that the Holy Spirit convicts us before we're saved. That is biblical. So there is a connection. <clears throat> but I want to just kind of, you know, say here, this concept that God himself is now working within you, this is also a very foreign concept to people of the first century. This idea that there is a God of the universe who created me, but now he's living inside of me somehow. What is the net effect of the Holy Spirit living within you? What does that make you? What does that do to you? What is the effect of the Holy Spirit living inside of you? Technically, it makes you part of God. I mean, there you go. And what is God to us? If you are a part of God now, what does that make you? Family. Say it. Family. Your family. 
dikaia sune is the is the the Greek word for this. It means you are justified, you are made righteous. This is a this is a really big one. Um, hagios means holy. You are made holy. God is just. He is righteous. He is holy. This is a great thing, folks. No longer is there. <clears throat> I'm running out of room. No longer is this concept that God is on high and he's going to strike you. He's watching you do all these bad things and he's just waiting. And at some point, you're going to do something wrong, <clears throat> going to get you. There are religions today, I would say most human religions that are not based on Judeo-Christianity, this is the model. There's a God of the universe. He watches you. He doesn't interact with you. He doesn't have a relationship with you. He's just waiting for you to screw up. Or, you know, if you appease him, he will, he will pour blessings on you. But now this, this model has changed. God's in there now. Now, this doesn't mean that you are God. Don't, don't think that. But he's in you. He's, he's making you alive. And let's read this last part here. Actually, um, it is kind of unfortunate that so much is made of the predestination piece of this next passage because this passage here, this last third of Romans 8, is one of the more inspirational passages of the entire New Testament um, that we tend to derail ourselves on. But like we said last week, I'm not going to really talk about this subject a whole lot. Let's read the entire passage and, and see what we get out of it. Romans uh, 8, 28 to 39. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him, and having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can be ever be against us? Since he who did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will, condem- who then will condemn us? No one. For Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No. Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed nothing in all creation, will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Awesome. Awesome. How do I even top that, right? I don't. What is the value of following Christ? I'll tell you, I made this comment before. One of the probably number one benefits you get as a Christian is hope. You don't have to worry about the future if you truly believe that Christ is who he says he is. 
if God is for us, who can be against us? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, that shows how. So let's talk. About, so freedom, freedom from what? Doubt, from lies, from worry. You get freedom, folks. That's your get out of jail free card. Is hope, <clears throat> and he's proven it. If he hasn't proven it by now, I don't know how he can, right? Or uh, persuaded. Now, I will say this, again, going back to what we talked about in the very beginning, I'm not bashing on people giving to charity in any way. Um, and I do think there is value in people um, telling others that they have done it to some degree, because if I know that the people I look up to are doing it, then I might be more inclined to do it. But again, I think this whole thing gets at our heart. Why are we doing it? Are we doing it to say, hey, look at me? Or are we doing it to show that you know we can make a difference in the world? So, so I totally get that. Okay. Um, this is great. Um, I think we'll pick this up next week with Romans 9, and uh, we'll go from there.